Welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christine and I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hello. All right. This week is your pick. So tell us what you picked. Uh, I picked a story called The Art of Losing by Yun Chui. How'd you find it? I was reading uh, Best American Short Stories and uh, I liked it. So I thought I'd bring it in. Supposedly one of the best. Well, I mean, that's all we need for this podcast. That's right. (laughs) Stamp of approval. And you're going to read from the beginning? I'm going to read from the beginning. Watch the boy, she had said, or had she? Some things he knew for sure. His name was Han Mose. His wife was Han Yung-ja. They had been married 40 years, possibly 50. The wife would know. They had two children, Timothy and Christina. They would always be his children, but they were no longer kids. He had to keep remembering that. Tunes. He was good with tunes. He could retrieve from memory music he hadn't heard in decades. The Mountain Rabbit, Ich liebe dich, Aretha Franklin's Operation Heartbreak, which he had first heard in his 20s on the Armed Forces Network in Korea. He had a good singing voice. He had been tenor one in the church choir. Years before that, he had led off the morning exercise song in the schoolyard. These performances had given him an appetite for praise and notice, although no one, seeing the old man he had become, would know it. His wife had no particular distinction, had had none, even in youth. How could she? Her childhood task had been survival. She was the oldest of three sisters who were orphaned as they fled south during the Korean War. In Busan, she had worked on the rubber processing line, removing trapped air from rolled products. She told him about it years later in another country, sitting on a weedy patch of campus lawn. Once she had snapped a dandelion stem, allowing the milk to run. Did he know that the sap of the dandelion was a form of natural rubber, latex? It was one of the few things he learned from her, and he never forgot it. It altered, in a small and precise way, his notice of trivial things, the soles of his shoes, the elastic in his waistband. So it sounds like this is the first time you had read the story. Yeah, I was just reading stories because uh, yeah. I do that now because of this podcast. I love reading stories. So, <laughs> Isn't that weird? I'm like, we should start a writing pod. Well, y- you said we should start a writing podcast. We should read other stories. I was like, yeah, I read tons of stories and then uh, very quickly ran out of stories <laughs> I had read. Right. So this is definitely good for that. Um, what did you like about this story, though? I really liked, you know, some of the early episodes, we talked a lot about point of view and that was driven mostly by me. And so this is one of those stories where I was thinking a lot about point point of view and what it does. And obviously we'll talk about it. The character has Alzheimer's and it's his experience. It's from his point of view for large sections of it. And I found that really fascinating how that was done and thought I should take a closer look. It took me a while when I was reading and it's embarrassing now because there's a couple clues a lot earlier on to realize how bad his situation was because he doesn't, we find out later that he doesn't even know that he has this diagnosis, right? They haven't really told him. So even as he's reminding himself of like these basic facts in his mind, he's just kind of, I don't know, slowing down. He doesn't think that he's losing anything. Yeah. We, we don't know either. I think there's a question of whether he knows or not, but at the very least he's going to forget it once in a while. But I, when first time I read it, I was so confused then halfway through, we are told what's going on. And I was like, oh, <laughs> that's right. what's going on. And um, things just clicked into place. And then I had to read it over. Right. I think it was once we were kind of in her head. Yes. Once we were in her head, then we, we, then we knew she for thought sure. about it. Yeah. Because she gave it a name. She right. called it Alzheimer's. She called what, he, what had happened to him in the moment, sundowning. And then a couple yeah, paragraphs she later. She uses that pretty late on, later mm-hmm. on. She gave it a Korean name too. There's whatever the Korean okay. word for Alzheimer's was in that paragraph. Yes, yes, yes. 
I think that was the phrase that I was thinking of in the piece that kind of made it seem like she hadn't even used that word with him. Oh, I see. Yeah. But right. In any case, on first read, unless you're making kind of an assumption there, it's not immediately clear what's going on with him. Even though in the, you know, in the paragraphs I just read, knowing it, and it's like, it's all there. It's oh, I know. All it's there. all there. <laughs> it's kind of pathetic. Uh but I assure you, we did not know. Yeah, it is pathetic. <laughs> I felt when I reread it and I was like, oh, yeah, how did I miss that? You just make assumptions when you're reading, you know, like, I don't know, especially a point of view character, you make assumptions about their mental state and their clarity. Yeah. And to be fair, like he wasn't necessarily like talking just about remembering things like after that, he lays the kind of groundwork with those basic little tidbits, then he kind of launches into descriptions of his wife. It made me just think that maybe he was losing, he was forgetting their story. I thought this was going to be him talking about their relationship or something, but really that was just the way they backed into it. I thought at some point in this, the beginning part that he had, she had left him. She had yes. told him, I'm leaving, we're, we're breaking up, I'm getting a divorce yes. and left left him with the kid. Because that's how he reacted to her absence was like, she's gone forever now. Right. And it, it also, um, I know this happens with folks with Alzheimer's, like forgetting if they have like kids currently, or like, like he says in the, in the intro, like they were his kids, but they weren't kids anymore. So like Jonathan is this, the grandson, but it, that's not even necessarily clear to us. I think he's like referred to as the kid throughout. So you don't even know necessarily like at what point in his life we are when he thinks that his wife who just, you know, put a hairpiece and makeup in has walked out the door. Yeah. So obviously, yeah, the perspective is like a huge thing in this. And when we switch back to the wife, we learn a little bit more about the stress that she's facing, knowing that this is a progressive disease and that when she steps out of the house, she does so knowing that eventually she shouldn't be doing that. And obviously we're arriving at the story at a point where it's like pretty clear that she's crossed that line, whether or not she knows it. And then it's only with the benefit of her perspective that we also learn her secret, which mm-hmm. is that her physical health has failed. And so even as the family is stressed about the father, she's harboring this information, which not to spoil anything, ends up being like a quicker timeline than (laughs) his own situation, right? So she's walking around the world stressed about her husband, but nobody knows to be stressed about her. And so it's with those perspective changes that the part that I liked most about this story was achieved, which was this like constant tension. So from like the moment it, it opens, even though we don't know he's got dementia, like I was confused as the reader. And then it became pretty clear that he didn't know what he was supposed to be doing with the kid. Then when we find out he's got dementia, And when we find out she's got this disease, the things that end up coming to a head are like his performance in the choir, which is really stressful, right? Because we're waiting for him to have some kind of an episode. He has a minor one, but you're waiting for it, waiting for it. And then at the end here, when he's left with the kid for that final time, and for the first time too, he's talking about the kid messing around at the balcony and they live higher up. Oh, yeah. I'm waiting for the kid to fall off the balcony, right? Yeah. And even when he remembers that this kid is in his care somehow, he takes him down to the pool and the kid starts dumping change into the pool leaning over the edge of the water and that is stressful right and then it all culminates in this like medical episode for the wife but i don't know about you but i was waiting for something the whole story and i thought for sure it was going to be him and the kid so those perspective changes i think is what achieved that tension for me i was like i was so stressed not excited stressed either i was like this is going to be bad yeah i had a similar reading because yeah i was bracing for what horrible things can happen to this kid and it's interesting so the perspective was his perspective in the beginning her perspective in the middle and his perspective at the end 
But when it's in his perspective, it almost feels like every once in a while it changes because he enters a new mindset, right? He forgets who the kid is, then he remembers. And so we go back and forth into these different kind of points of view that have, or at least they have different knowledge bases and they look at the world in different ways as we're moving through it. So that change also, I think, lends to the, because we know what happened in an earlier part and all of a sudden he's reacting to something that had happened that we know about, that he should know about, but he doesn't know about. And we're like, oh no, how is he going to, or we notice he forgot about the kid. He's not doing what he's supposed to do with the kid. And it, it you're, you're right. It just keeps adding to that tension and building it up. Yeah. But, but that's a good point that his condition is also throwing these curveballs at the reader. So even as soon as he has a handle on the situation, like you said, or even if like we're stressed about the balcony, but he somehow navigates the kid away from the balcony because he realizes he's supposed to be taking care of the kid. He's never fully aware that there's danger present, right? Mm -hmm. But he'll get like diverted somehow. And then just when you think like, oh, then he'll, he'll have this other weird thing where at the end there, it's because they hear the ice cream truck and he decides to indulge this kid by leaving the apartment. And he's under explicit instructions, never to leave but those have gone out the window so you're right that adds this whole other level because there's not many other like characters and and scenarios where you could pull that off without it being like really jarring continuity wise right it's drawing continuity wise for the character but we're on board now because we know what's happening in his head and those transitions are done really smoothly now that you mention it right like because we're, we're privy not to the changing reality so much as like his confusion like we get to see that he's also readjusting right he doesn't just like launch into this new reality he's also kind of like dazed each time he switches and that helps us yeah i think one of the other things that happens to him is especially like you mentioned him dumping the coins into the pool it was the kid's idea he wanted to throw coins in the pool and then his grandfather kind of had for a moment like that childlike curiosity about things and became a child for a couple of paragraphs while he was dumping Coins. And then I'll, then he's an adult again. And then he's, so his, his sense of, uh, like wonder, obli- yeah, wonder obligation, you know, like the fact that he has to take care of this kid versus the fact that he's just a playmate with this kid. Changing. Right. I'm trying to think, I've, I know I've seen movies that have tackled this subject of like what it's like to be the person who's slipping versus like the caretaker who's dealing with like, oh, my mom doesn't know I'm her daughter, right? We've heard that story a million times, but you do always wonder like what it's like for the individual. And I think this, it, I mean, it feels authentic, right? There's only a couple people that could write this who have actually gone through it, but maintain some semblance of like reality to do it. So this this short story feels unique in in that perspective that we get to hear it from him and from the wife, but we understand and appreciate what it's like for him. Like just the constant, he's constantly reorienting himself, right? So when they talk about like sundowning, that's something that happens every day in the evening. So mm-hmm. they might have a wonderful day every day, but every night they they fade into this problem, right? So it's not just Groundhog Day in terms of them not remembering things or having to be reminded of things. It's like this cycle happens every day. So it was obviously like a sad story too. So I felt like foreboding and I felt anxious. But then from the wife's perspective, it's it's almost less about her. When I was reading her part, I wasn't necessarily waiting for her to like clutch her chest on the sidewalk while she's out, yeah. right? And I wasn't waiting for her to like get a bad phone call. But when we're in her head, what seems most stressful is like the responsibility, right? So even absent of some catastrophe, she's worried about money and whether they can afford to go to a home 
home, whether she's not going to be able to leave him anymore. Like there is a passage and I kind of forget now. I think she's kind of like thinking about what's going to happen when he does finally die, if he dies before she does and how even after that, she'll have to be the person that like maintains his memory. So she's like, she's thinking to herself, like, even when I think I'm going to get a break one day, right? I'm never going to be relieved of this like caretaking duty as his wife and as the wife of someone that has this disease. So that was like, you're reading her part and just like feel this cloud, you know? With him, it's like there's a storm coming, but with her, it's like just fucking overcast every day of her life. Yeah, that's a good, I do like the fact that this story had both ends of it, you know, his perspective and hers kind of feel that conflict. Because uh, it reminded me of the title again, right? Like they're both losing something. And so the art of losing is how they're each handling it. And yeah, she's, she's losing a lot of things, right? Like her own freedom, her own health, his health, her husband. And just like we get a peek into just kind of how like even the mundane task of, of leaving the house to what go to the bank is made all the more like dramatic. Yeah. After the first uh, scene where, you know, he's like, oh, she told him to watch the kid and then he, she's gone and then all this stuff happens and she comes back and it's OK, but wasn't really okay every time she leaves the house after i'm like no don't leave them alone (laughs) why is that kid still there Right, because from her perspective, she comes home and her husband and the, and the grandson are intact each time. Yeah. And then it's only by reading his perspective that we're like, oh, buy a thread, buy a thread. You should have come home sooner. And then at the end there, when the son-in-law is like, yeah, you know, I am kind of hungry and like leaves. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh. I thought for sure. So I don't know, this is going to sound silly, but I feel like a lot of times when we read some of these short stories, they fall into like one category or the other in terms of like one being like plot heavy and one being like writing about a concept or an idea. And I think this is a really good mashup, right? Because we're talking about the art of losing. We explore these topics, but we're doing it really um, through plot. And that sounds so simple. It re- I know it sounds ridiculous, but like you could argue that the choir scene doesn't need to be in this. This could be a story about all the time that she leaves him at home but I felt like by the end the choir scene existed because and the whole lead up to it because we're using that as a way to demonstrate the art of losing right so he's losing choir right again he he stopped going in the first place not because of this but it, it coincided in a certain way and then he's invited back they don't know he's got this dementia thing going on but the wife starts taking him he fakes it really well until that performance and then he has to step out again so like that didn't necessarily necessarily add to the overall plot but we're using all these like examples and and that was not just like some half-hearted tangent either that felt like a full story too yeah i don't know this this felt like um like if you wanted to explore this theme throughout the course of like a novel it'd be easy to do right there'd be tons of things like the choir that's an interesting uh thought because this story when i think about it, it doesn't feel like it needs more right it doesn't feel like it needs to be a novel or anything it feels complete yeah but you are right there are more places that if you were to write a different story, you could make it into a novel of some kind and explore so much around the same theme. I think a lot of times when we talk in our workshop, especially about like, oh, this could be a novel, it's usually because like as a reader, we crave either like an answer to the current plot or backstory on characters that we find interesting. But I think here, like the concept is big enough that it could merit a novel. I'm not saying I want more, right? Like you said, we're pretty satisfied with what we see here, but the concept is big enough that they pulled out several 
several plot points. We still got a short story arc, but it could go on if it wanted to. The choir scene is just like kind of what stands out to me because I thought when that concept was introduced that that was going to be the climax, but it was just a subplot. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what I was thinking about as I read it. I remember like readjusting when it was over. Yeah, it's it's obviously, like you said, it's important for the plot. It's necessary for the development. It's also, you know, it's what brings his uh, diagnosis into public awareness. Yes. His kids are there. That's you're right. So it's all all necessary, but I could I could see a different version of this where that didn't happen. It was all more private. Yeah, we we invested a lot of time in terms of like hearing his practicing and all this stuff, and it wasn't like oh he's been in choir this whole time, but he just had an outburst. There's just a lot to it. I mean, obviously she's sitting there watching him trying to re-engage with the church with the choir and kind of just waiting for something terrible to happen. You know, she's in she's in our show when he's with the kid we're waiting for something terrible to happen and she when she's watching him there she's also doing the same thing it's like okay when is the terrible thing going to happen can we at least get through this right. performance without something happening and nope now we can't yeah I imagine like her struggle too is a lot like parents of special needs kids or something, right? Where it's just like kind of constant, like you you're, you have a caretaker role that kind of collides in all different kinds of ways, like with, you just can't have a normal day-to-day life without these considerations that she's making at every turn. Like she even talks about like when her neighbor pulls her aside in the hallways of their complex, he's like, here, I want you to have this plant clipping. And she's like, Jesus, everything everyone wants to give me is a task. Yeah. And then the plant like dies and she makes another comment later on, like, because she says something sarcastic in her head. Like, you know, I have all the time in the world to talk to you. Sure. I'll come into your apartment. You know, like nobody sees her struggle either. Part of it's her fault, right? Like she's not asking for help. She's not telling them how bad it really is. She knows they'd step in, but there's just something about the weight of everything on her that adds to this tension for me. Yeah. She's down to the last straw. Yeah, It's funny. That neighbor is the only person who she's told the truth about her diagnosis oh but all he does is give her more more to worry about <laughs> you know like here take care oh. of this plant here i'm yeah. gonna move to florida i need to get rid of my stuff oh yeah <laughs> It's like she, he becomes a burden, even though she's trying to unburden herself mm-hmm. a little bit. That's another kind of aspect that I think lends itself to the idea that like this author could easily write a novel, if not on this subject, then probably on anything they write. Because that neighbor is just like, it's just a side character and he's a good foil. But like even the little plot about the organ, she mentions that like he's invited her a couple times to see the organ in his apartment. And she's like, you're full of shit. You can't fit a church organ in your apartment, you know? And then when he's finally leaving and showing her around his place, she sees like this upright in his house and he's like do you want it and she's like baffled by this and I'm sure there's like some metaphor there but I think to the title his contribution is you know that he's by himself and he's old and he's got to go live in a home so he's like he has to pack his life up he said into 20 medium sized boxes and he doesn't know how to fit the organ in those so he's dealing with it like in a very public way he's kind of like it's not that it doesn't bother him but he's just kind of like irreverent about it almost right he's like well I gotta go so he adds that to it I guess. Yeah, he, he announces he has to go. It takes him a long time to pack up. He's there for a long time. 
<laughs> I, I was confused by that too because it's like and then she saw him the next day and then she saw i was like what like this guy hasn't left yet yeah you're right so he adds something to it but he also seems ripe for like further development if you really wanted to i mean this could be a, a story about everyone in the apartment building dealing with some kind of a loss i think this is this what we're kind of pulling at here is really important to think about for as we're writing our own stuff is like how much of if you think of it as a theme like the, the title kind of encapsulates like okay this story is going to be about losing things and so if, if i sit down to write a story and i want it to be about whatever how many different ways can i pull at that or portray versions of that in my story like i need a character to show this aspect of it how can i insert that character i need i want a character that does this and that right it's a way to expand a story i think it's you can have a simple story where it's just one character dealing with something but then throw in another character is dealing with it in a different way or another character that is you know just keep growing it like that the only thing i would add to that because you're right is that adding all these things should be with the goal in mind of achieving whatever emotional arc you think you need so if the emotional arc is achieved by one of these things but layered and complicated in a good way by a second one of these things or a third great but don't just add a fourth and a fifth for no reason they have to harmonize yeah and i think this one has a great mix that way right because we get his perspective we get her perspective we get the neighbor we get this weird choir thing we have the kids and it's a lot but you're right they're all different aspects and then i think they do help us by the end when all three of these characters are kind of like dealing with the immediate fallout we get to feel the loss across each of them. Yeah, that's right. Wow. We we uh, we solved it, John. <laughs> Don't add shit just to add shit. Sometimes like, you know, when we read a short story in, in a group or just like in general and you kind of read something, you're like, I could have done without that, you know? Yep. It's usually because we like got the point. Like you already did a good job. And so the inclusion of this little tangent is distracting somehow. Yes. So... What else would you like to mention on, about this one? Um, I don't have much more to say beyond my takeaway. Sure. What's your takeaway? Um, my, my takeaway is, um, I mean, we have pretty much covered it already, but I was thinking about point of view mm-hmm. and uh, specifically... Well, there's so much to say about point of view for this one. And we've said a couple of things, but I guess the thing that I wrote down was how show show and tell can interact with point of view. And I don't want to get into esoteric details about that. But for this story, the fact that we were not told what was going on in his head in like a clinical way yeah, so that we could take that step back, but we had to experience it by reading it. And then we found out, oh, that's what's going on with him. There's something interesting there. And the experience of it is probably is this is what the show tell means is like show is let us experience something don't just tell us about it mm-hmm. and this kind of demonstrates that give us the experience his experience of having Alzheimer's don't just tell us he has Alzheimer's and I just love the way that the point of view is handled in order to do that yeah that's a great point because obviously we don't get told that he has Alzheimer's but we also don't even get told he was confused <laughs> yes exactly yeah yeah we get to experience all of that uh, maybe a less experienced writer would think that they were achieving showing versus telling by keeping us in his perspective, but simplifying those kinds of descriptions too, right? By saying like, he didn't know where he was. He knew this was his daughter, but I mean, the confusion here is is on such a deep level. Like you said, we're often wondering whether he understands his own situation. So you don't get the benefit of those simple descriptors as a third person narrator by saying simple things things like he's confused you have to really experience it as he would which is this is the reality this is the reality 
Yeah, there because it's point of view and it's very um, in his head. You know what he's experiencing. There, there's actually a cognitive thing that we do um, is called confabulation, where we people with brain injuries misunderstand their experiences, their sensory inputs, but they will confabulate. They will assume that they're, what they're experiencing, what their brain is creating as their experience, is the correct thing, and so they make mm. up a story about why. You know, one really fascinating one is in split brain patients. There's evidence that each side of the brain because they're split apart has its own opinion about things. So they will ask, they'll set up a, an experiment where they ask the verbal side, the side that has language questions. And then they, you know, when you present something to only one eye, then only one side of the brain gets it. Printed words or with other things, they can talk to the other side of the brain and they will tell They'll tell the nonverbal side of the brain, um, why don't you get up and go get a drink? And then they ask the person when they get up, they say with, to the verbal side, where are you going? And he said, I, I wanted to stretch my legs. So they have no idea that the other part of their brain wanted to go get a drink. So they make something up and they believe it. And that's, they just confabulate this whole reason for it. So I think for, for story purposes, for point of view purposes, you know, saying something like he was confused, we never believe that of ourselves unless we're like, you know, metacognitively aware of our confusion yes. for various reasons. Like you read something that's confusing or whatnot, but you're not going to be confused about what you take to be your um, sensory input. <laughs> so you're just going to confabulate the reasons for why you're doing things. Like this guy does with the kid. It's like, oh, there's a kid. I guess I'm taking care of him or what's that kid doing? I'm supposed to do this and just making stuff up as he goes. That must be my kid or that's wow. somebody else's kid or whatever. So that science is obviously like really applicable to a uh, first person dementia character yeah. but, but i would also argue that that's a trap that writers who are doing like first person monologues fall into where they forget the character and they kind of like explore all facets of a concept right like you mm -hmm. never hear like a first person character saying like i'm right i know i'm right you always hear like but am i right and it's like no you're right They're, they wouldn't be confused there are some people that are like strong in their convictions or uh don't view themselves as the bad guy aren't just because a story is first person doesn't mean that that person is struggling with their own perspective or, you know, we always think we're the main character. We always think we're right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a really great point. So the next time you're writing like a villain, even they don't have to have a moment of weakness. Yeah. I think readers are more forgiving than, than writers about point of view, but it is something to really pay attention to is would that person really have that thought? Would they even notice, you know, we talked about that in a recent episode about whether or not, how do you, tell a first person narrator or a, or a close third person where it's always in somebody's head how do you communicate to the reader that they're missing something yeah right, right. you can't you can't just say all right you know by the way he missed it or yeah. you could but it's really clumsy but so it's it's something it's the same kind of pov problem is um they don't know but we have to somehow sense it. Yeah. Well, we talk about like ways to do that well in dialogue, right? Where like character, like let them misunderstand each other, stuff like that. Oh yeah. That's a good parallel. Yeah. Where it's obvious to the reader that there's miscommunication going on. But um, I was thinking too of the movie. I know it was based on a book with uh, Christian Bale and he's the serial killer. Oh, um, American Psycho. Yeah. American Psycho, I would imagine was not written from the perspective of a serial killer questioning his motives, right? <laughs> <laughs> like those those stories are enjoyable because 
we feel as if we're getting insight into someone's mind where, especially if they're wrong about their like evil, right? They're not questioning whether they're evil. They're just like doing it. That's an interesting, uh, I haven't read that book, but my understanding is that it's kind of like the movie in that. Yeah, I, I watched, I took like a women's film class and it, I think it was like written by a woman and directed by a woman or something. And so that was like the parallel, but yeah, it was supposed to be pretty similar in terms of like the perspective. Like all the, his delusions appear as real yes yeah yeah wow. that's kind of wow, wow, wow. it's um that's a it's a just as a as a writer what a what a thing to try to do <laughs> you know oh yeah how how do you that's you're sending yourself such a difficult task of allowing the reader to experience it as if it's real but also question it at the same time without undermining yourself and making it yeah. into a joke and yeah. stick to third person yeah <laughs> and how also how do i avoid split brain is, do I have to like avoid certain <laughs> foods or is this like a now this don't play a, football thing? They used to, um, and they might still do it, but I don't think so. I think it was for certain epileptic, uh, oh. like severe epilepsy. Okay. They would sever that because what happens is just the, the um, seizures cascade through the whole brain. And if they separate it, it helps reduce them. At what cost? Yeah. At what cost? You're creating two people in one head apparently. So Jesus. All right. Well, my takeaway is much less exciting and not based on science. <laughs> but I just wanted to talk about like um, the bait and switch with the tension in this piece, right? We talk about like endings being surprising yet inevitable. So in this situation, you could argue that it was surprising but inevitable no matter what happened, right? Because we're given so much information that we're going to be waiting for it. We've envisioned a version of it, but whatever version you give us is going to be different. So we're going to be surprised in that aspect. Here though, we were given so much information and still I was surprised that it was the wife that had an episode first, right? She ends up in the hospital by the end and that's the stressor of the story. That's like the climax is that the husband we've been so stressed about the whole time and that she's been stressed about the whole time is not even the one that like befalls some tragedy all his own, right? So... As a reader, that was exciting. Not in a good way for this one, obviously. But like, think about the ways that you can build tension by telling us exactly what's happening. I think sometimes people think they're building tension by like keeping us guessing, like a murder That's mystery good. or something. Yeah. I don't want to read a murder mystery. Like, this is telling me all the information and I'm still stressed. And it's because we know something's coming and that's been made clear by what the characters are thinking about and worrying about and doing. And then what you can do to make it like one of these aha endings is to surprise us with a different outcome, right? We're waiting and watching for one thing and then do something else. That doesn't mean like introduce something at the end that we couldn't have predicted because people also mistake twist endings for this sort of thing. Like, oh no, we're time traveling to the future, but then an asteroid hit us. It's like, okay, you can't like invent a fucking asteroid. Like that's not exciting as the reader if we couldn't have predicted it, right? Here we had all the information. I could have just as easily been stressed about her heart giving out and I wasn't. And it's because we started with one thing she had a different concern. Maybe there's readers that read this and were waiting for what happened. I wasn't. And I think that if you give us all the information, you can still surprise us and I can still be tense throughout. And this is a really good example of that. Also a really good example of it where the danger does not seem imminent or deadly necessarily, right? It's personal, which is a yeah. short story. It should be personal. It should be. Yeah. It's not like, you know, a stranger broke into my house and this is a tense story. This is a tense story because it's real tragedies unfolding and uh, 
um, I think they did a great job with that. I love the the way the ending takes us back to the beginning, mm-hmm. you know, but except we traveled so far in the middle that it's obviously, and, and we know what her situation is. We know, you know, I kind of assumed she had died, but listening to you talk about it, she doesn't have to have died for this to be as bad as, as it seems to be. Yeah, that's what I think. Like, even if she's alive, his situation's over, right? Yeah. In the beginning, he thought she, he was, she was gone and he didn't know what to do. And now at the end, she's gone and he doesn't know what to do, but it might be worse than that. <laughs> you know, she <laughs> mm. <laughs> might be gone permanently. Mm-hmm. Very good. All right. Thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our monthly newsletter at our website, NaplesWritersWorkshop.com. And for daily writing tips, industry news, and great short fiction, join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Naples Writers Workshop.